For those of you who have not been regulars, welcome. Nice to have you. We are way in the middle of this book. We are on lesson number 40, 49. That's a long time. That's what I have written down here. Yeah, 47, 48, 49. Good heavens. And we've been working on uh, the, the yamas and the niyamas. We started on the yamas and niyamas um, lesson number 36. You can't say we're not thorough. Okay, so here we are. can't believe the numbers, but that must be the truth. All right, so that means we've been doing this for more than a year. Wow. Okay, that's what I said when we started. We would take as long as we wanted. So we have now finished the yamas and the niyamas. This is the important news. So we are now up to 246, 2 colon 46, the second book, the 46th sutra. And we're up to the word asana. So let's just sort of start right in. Okay, I mean, on, uh, the, when, you, when people watch these on recordings later, they don't realize that six weeks has gone by and universes have rearranged themselves. They just know that now we're on 246. Okay, asana. The third limb of Ashtanga Yoga means to be seated in a firm, pleasant, and relaxed position. Um, the actual word that's used earlier when, when Swami's um, talking about the, um, the eight limbs, he calls it simply posture. Here he calls it, of course, asana, um, and he describes what that posture is. Um, Swamiji takes the opportunity um, to speak his mind a little bit here. He said, This passage, be it noted, is the only place in the entire Yoga Sutra of Patanjali from which physical yoga enthusiasts draw their scriptural authority. Swami calls it spurious. Yet the very word yoga has become in the popular mind a system of elaborate bodily positions. Hatha yoga, the name of this system, is truly an excellent way of keeping the body in top condition, but it is simply a mistake to identify it with Patanjali's yoga teachings. So he does a, a tiny little Kriyananda rant on that point <laughs> in his own inimitable fashion. It is simply a mistake. Um, I was actually watching, uh, I don't know where, I saw some, you know, the, the, um, the skill of Hatha yogis these days is really quite astonishing. And there was somebody doing sun salutations, you know, all the little YouTube videos that you see. I mean, just uh, an amazing degree of, of grace, bodily control. I mean, just, it's, it's a highly skilled uh, art form by now what they're doing. And certainly beyond, certainly beyond my ability and way beyond my interest. <laughs> um, but it's very important when we're just dealing with this one word to really understand that what those people are doing, which I think is very impressive and is not without its enormously admirable qualities, is not Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And even though there is this effort on the part of Hatha Yogis to somehow merge their reality into the sutras, and for heaven's sakes, why not? Because the Yoga Sutras have a tremendous amount to offer, so if that's the gateway that you're going to come in, there's no reason to not to. But uh, just for the sake of understanding orthodox purity and also really understanding what this book is about, which in the next couple of sutras we're going to talk about, 
This book is about, as we have talked about earlier, it is about a complete non-relationship with the physical world. It's about completely redefining ourselves entirely and only from the inside out. And that kind of... Um, and naturally, if, you, if you're that skilled with your body, you have also developed many of the qualities of a yogi. You have to be able to concentrate. You have willpower. You have discipline. You have a degree of attunement. And yoga postures in and of themselves do create positive states of mind. And Swami Kriyananda taught them and Master also had his boys, as he called his monks, he had his boys demonstrating them. Um, It's not clear. Um, The way Swami talks about it, he talks about it more as that Master had them demonstrating the yoga postures. And I never heard really Swami talk about it being a sadhana for him or anything like that. He also had it in the SRF magazines. Um, Master did, I mean. And some of the other monks were more um, into that. Uh, Bernard and others, you know, practice that more. Swami himself said that he was uh, an indifferent Hatha yogi, as he described himself, until he was demonstrating one day when Master was present. And then all of a sudden he just had the ability to do them all in an expert manner. So it wasn't like he ever cultivated the ability to do them, but Master gave it to him as a grace, which served Swamiji well, because when he was no longer in SRF and he had to go around and earn money in order to build Ananda, he taught a two-part class all over the Bay Area for uh, several years. He would teach one hour of Hatha Yoga and then one hour of Raja Yoga. And that Hatha Yoga was, of course, an entree in to get people involved. And if, if he'd ever had to cultivate the ability to do them, I'm not sure that he would have done it. But because it was just given to him, it was something that, therefore, he could do. And subsequently, he created... Um, his way of doing them, the Ananda way of doing it with the affirmations and everything, and it's been a very important contribution. So it's, it's not as if there's not a, a place for it and it's of, not of benefit. It's just important to understand. I mean, Swami's comment that this is the only place in the entire sutra where the word asana appears, and its actual meaning is right posture. Because in order to be able to meditate well and successfully... You know, it means to be seated in a firm, pleasant, (laughs) and relaxed position. Nothing more. And that means a chair or whatever. When Master came to America, he was very explicit that people could just sit comfortably in chairs because it was ludicrous to ask Westerners to be able to sit on the floor because he wanted them to meditate. And then he describes, you've mastered your asana, your right posture, when you can be completely motionless with a straight, upright spine for three hours. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Um, then, number 247. Uh, and it, but it is important in the, in the sense that the body is a huge obstacle. And so the, the capacity to sit, whether you can sit motionless with, for three hours or not, But to be able to be seated in a firm, pleasant, and relaxed position is essential for the practice of yoga. And for that reason, energization, at least, if not hatha yoga, is a a great benefit. I mean, how how much of the time is our meditation ultimately interrupted because we become too uncomfortable, just one way or another? The body begins to annoy you. And as he puts down here, 
He says, sitting very still and resisting the temptation to look around, scratch, shift, sniff, or swallow. (laughs) He kind of lists them out. So number 247 is, by reducing one's natural tendency toward restlessness and by visualizing infinity, true posture is acquired. And so what Swami writes here, which Master recommended, is that you visualize yourself um, seated bodiless, suspended in vast space. It's a really beautiful image, isn't it? That we just, and this is again, this is the real message of Patanjali, is not that we do all these extraordinary things with our body, but that by inward concentration, the body simply ceases to exist. And Swamiji, on on many different occasions, has really offered us that particular visualization where you're just in the middle of nothing at all. And this is also completely consistent with everything that Patanjali is talking about, where the outer reality is just not our concern. It's, as I've said in these earlier classes, the outer world becomes irrelevant. That whatever it's doing just has nothing to do with us. And that really becomes our right state of mind, even when we're not meditating, when we're walking around interacting. It's, it's there, we're responsible for it, but it's irrelevant to our state of mind. It's irrelevant to our state of consciousness. I, I find that at least just fascinating to contemplate because the sense of cause and effect. Last night, um, I was talking to the Sadika group and the subject was, was relationships. And at the end, somebody asked me in all the counseling that I used to do, I used to do a lot of couples counseling, what did I think was the essential? What was the most consistent issue that was brought to me? And there was some more serious discussion, but in the end I said, I feel miserable, it must be your fault. <laughs> and that is that sums up about three decades worth of couples counseling. <laughs> But that's when you think the external world is intensely relevant to your own state of mind, don't you? And to really realize that it's just my responsibility. And so that's where when you move off into to meditate and and try to in every way separate yourself from the world you're living in by simply disappearing it. I love that. You're just floating bodiless in infinite space. Such a fabulous image, isn't it? And then from this point meaning uh, once you have a firm, pleasant position, you've reduced your natural tendency toward restlessness, you have visualized infinity, and your true posture is acquired, from this point, the dualities cease to disturb the mind. Now bear in mind, Patanjali is just expressing these realities. He's not instructing us on how to achieve them. I mean, he is, but he's describing what will happen when we do these things. There's, There's no technique in here. Um, but there's no technique in as much as there is with Kriya and so on. I'm, I keep having to modify what I'm saying. And so he says, by thus eliminating the awareness of objective reality with all its ups and downs, um, you, can, you are prepared, he says, to go deeper in meditation. Of course, the end point of all of these is if, 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 then, and the then is Nirbhakalpa Samadhi. So this is a progression. Now... Tom, I'm so glad you're here, because there's our word, the mind. 
which you love to ask me what it means and I love to not answer. But I actually found a very interesting answer, which I, I announced to you about six months ago and then I chickened out. So we are going to attempt to talk about it today because I think it's, and this is out of the holy science, which I never try to teach out of because I really find it beyond my comprehension. I'm clever, but not that clever. <laughs> so, um, but he, there is something in here that I finally actually understood, and it matches this exactly. The dualities used to disturb the mind. And this is how, if I can say this correctly, this is how he describes the mind. We talk about um, pure consciousness, and then we talk about booty, he talks about, where we just perceive um, everything that is, but we don't divide it up at all. Sri Yukteswar defines the mind as being the opposite of that. That the two, um, the two ways we can be aware are that we can be just aware without dividing the world up into ups and downs and yeses and noes. This is what made me think about it. Eliminating awareness of objective reality. The mind is that part of our awareness which is drawn into that dual world. And when we draw out of that dual world, we go to the opposite pole of that. These are the two opposites. One is pure consciousness without the sense of duality. The opposite of it is consciousness with the sense of duality. And, and he, Sri Yukteswar, I don't know really how Swami and Patanjali are using it, calls one mind and the other buddhi. is an interesting manas, is the word he uses. So that was the closest I ever got to understanding. I didn't get six months ago that these two were opposites. And so when we're no longer in the part of our own consciousness that's drawn into that duality, then we settle into the part of our consciousness that is beyond it. So this is what he says here. Once we have become completely calm and we're not restless anymore... It's possible then, because the body itself is what draws us into this duality. Swamiji, in another place, I believe it's in this book, but maybe it's in a different one, he talks about how sexuality is the first, is is one of the reasons why it's such a delusion, I mean, why it's such a, um, a disturbance to our consciousness is that it pulls us immediately into the dual universe. It pulls us into desire and satisfaction, into longing and fulfillment, into, you know, into male and female, or at least into self and other. Um, and, in, and it's a recurring, you know, it's a sort of never-ending impulse that just never get, goes to sleep. And so once we start through that one, then it, it leads us, it keeps our mind, it keeps us in our mind, into that part of ourselves which is constantly drawn into the duality. It takes us into gender, I don't know, just all into personal love, into all of those things. Isn't that interesting? And I can, when I think of it in terms of the part of us that's just drawn in duality, I've never quite understood why Swami said that. I mean, I heard it and I can repeat it, but I haven't um, really gotten it. But when I think of it like that, because it immediately takes us, so we want to go into duality because of that d- desire within us that is impossible to... Um, satisfy inwardly 
I mean, on, in that form physically. You have to transcend it and, and take it back to its root desire, which is for a, a different kind of union. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay. Um, what is your background in these teachings? Yeah. I mean, because that's the first time I've met you. So, is this your first class here? It's my first class, but I've read the entire Sutras a couple of times, and I don't understand a great deal of it, which is why I'm here. Okay. Um, no, I appreciate both your frankness and your willingness to let me go on, <laughs> because uh, there is a lot of background before I got to that one. Okay. But bear in mind, if you don't understand something, for the present moment, just put it on the shelf. That's my advice to people. Take what you do understand. Don't reject what you don't. Uh, but don't accept it either. Just box it away for the time being, and then we'll recircle around it later. What is your name? I can't quite... My name is Deb. Deb. Okay. Welcome. Nice to have you here. Um, have you read this version? No. Okay. Swami Kriyananda retranslated the sutras. And in many, many cases, he remarked that he could not find any translation that he felt was a really adequate um, representation of the original. And he felt also that many of the translations just obscured the meaning rather than clarified them. So you might find, if you try this one, that not only is the commentary helpful, but the actual um, English version of the sutras, you might find more easy to comprehend. I mean, he, he had ten versions in front of him when he was working on it. and I mean, he thought, he, some of them he read to us, they were just impossibly obscure. You know, you just couldn't tell what the heck they were trying to say, even if it was in your own language. What to speak of the spiritual perception, you just couldn't even get the basic language. So, this helps. All right. So, by thus eliminating awareness of objective reality... And I also just really, again, appreciate, and I've, I've said it, but we have to really think about it, that the spiritual path is nothing less than that. So much of the time we're working with the other side of it, which is how do you express spirituality in everyday life, that we lose track of what was really happening here, which is that, that it, it's, the goal is not to be more comfortable. I, um, there's this magazine that I buy periodically just to see what the other half is doing. Um, it's spirituality and health or something like that. I can't even remember. Just every so often when I'm at the grocery store, I see it and I, I pick it up. And, you know, I just read through it and I read all the ads because it's nice to know what the planet is thinking when people say spirituality. Um, and there is this, it's not surprising, there's this, this, just such a strong desire to be spiritual without being a devotee of God. And you just see all of these different ways that people come at it. And they're not wrong. You know, and they're, they're just trying to... This was about finding the sacred. That was the whole theme. And so it was, it was all about everyday life and seeing the divine within it. And then sort of like, if you don't, it's because you're not trying hard enough. And how we all need to. And then we, we try to make a great deal out of every little thing. Which, you see, it's valid because if your consciousness is elevated, in fact, everything that you see is an expression of the divine. That's how the saints see it. But when you try to do it by just making yourself be aware without understanding that you first have to to transcend this plane and really perceive another 
and then look at this world from that perspective. Without that whole piece of it, it's not that it's a bad practice. Heaven knows it's a nice practice. But it's an extremely difficult practice. And it's also, where does the actual transformation come in? I mean, one can develop, and I appreciate this, a good attitude. But then you end up sort of like, um, you have to also celebrate the suffering, and you have to also celebrate the sadness. And, and it's, it's just, to my mind, a little muddled. But it's all a tr- very serious attempt never to have to talk about God, just to talk about awareness. But if you don't talk about a level of reality and our connection to a level of reality that has nothing to do with this everyday life, I, I don't really see how you'll end up anywhere. And you'll end up being a good person. And there's certainly no harm in that. But you won't become a completely other reality. So it, it really just depends on what, what, your, what your ambitions are. This aversion to God is really annoying. And it's just annoying because it, it, it's so much effort um, to not find the actual solution. I was very pleased. I saw this fragment of a, a Oprah Winfrey saying goodbye after her 25 years of whatever she did. And she just gave this long thing that I guess was her personal philosophy. And somewhere in the middle, she just brought up the word God. And she basically just looked right at the camera and said, you know what I'm talking about, and didn't exactly use these words, but the words she used were, get over it. <laughs> you know, just, we know that this is part of the story and you've just, you've got to get into it. And I, I feel and have felt for a long time, and Swami's been very explicit, this is our mission, one of our missions. But of course, the word God is a difficult word in English, and we just have to keep working with that. When I was in New Zealand... We had a weekend retreat, and the first Friday night was our last our last program there after the six weeks. And by that point, I was just ready to, almost everybody there was really ready to go much deeper in a devotional way. I'd been kind of playing the edges of it a little bit, introducing people, trying to win them to the whole thing. But then I just decided to do it. So the next morning, right after breakfast, these two women accost me. And they're basically packed and ready to leave because they didn't bargain for God. So we had a conversation about the word God and what, 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 uh, what, what an absolute, what, how, how unspecific the word is. And, it, and you, one projects upon it whatever you want to project upon it. And I talked about the word Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. I mean, what is there to be against? if you think of it like Satchitananda. So whatever it is that you're against doesn't apply. This woman, God bless her, God bless her, was honest enough to admit that if it's in a language she doesn't understand, then she doesn't object. (laughs) You know, if it's Krishna, Shiva, whatever, she'll just let it run. But the English word God, and she was honest enough to realize that she was really hung up on the word. And it wasn't even the concept, it was the word and all the associations it had for her. And she stayed. She didn't go drive away. She and her friends stayed and actually they had a wonderful time, I believe. But it's just, we weren't not going to get anywhere. And that's again what, what I was saying, eliminating awareness of objective reality. That's what real meditation is about. Yes, Adam. 
So Oprah was a big fan of Oprah was a big fan of the book uh, The Power of Now, which actually helped for me um, to actually be more comfortable when I was even this was like two no, like one book pre-autobiography of a yogi. So I was coming to the path, but I wasn't quite there yet. And it helped me redefine the word God and just remember that it is just a word. You know, I'd, I'd sort of pasted my own, you know, definition on it that I wasn't very comfortable with. And I've even known people who are devotees of master who don't like to use the word God in prayer or maybe just out loud, maybe they use it just to themselves. But I sort of wonder why there isn't more of a movement from folks like us, perhaps, um, but not us. Obviously, you're here doing it right now. But to sort of redefine the word so that people are able to use it and understand that it is just a word and it means different things to different people. Well, I spend all my time trying to do exactly that. So basically the question is, the the word is, why is it not more popular? Um, I think it's just this culture. You know, we're just a very mental culture and reactive culture and extremely distracted culture and egoic, pleasure-oriented. We want to be in charge. We just want to have our egos be the last word. So, you know, this whole country at this point is trying really, 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 really hard to see if we can just get all our egos lined up so we can, you know, just have it all work. And it isn't working. And Swamiji just says, basically, it's just going to come down a lot harder before people are really willing to let go of that. You know, you go to other cultures, it's not like that at all. It's, this is America. It's a, it's a good thing because we're self-reliant and so on, but we're also just materialistic and arrogant. Just can't be helped. It's just what we are. We're, we're good people. I like this country. I've been to a lot of others, and this is a darn good one. <laughs> but uh, that's an unfortunate characteristic. The other side of it is, we, we, you know, Americans, uh, I've said this before, uh, being shrewd is a really important value in this country. It's not a value in all cultures. You, if you live and if you grow up in your own culture, you don't realize. But being shrewd and not being taken advantage of and not being gullible and making sure that nobody gets a, you know, upper hand on you, it's a very American characteristic. And as a result, we're, we're suspicious. We're suspicious of our own heart's feelings and people are, uh, they, we don't operate in this country from the heart. I remember when Swamiji, standing right here, sitting right here, greeting people after a big satsang here and lots of different countries, cultures were represented as it happened because of where we live. And Swamiji speaking, you know, because he spoke various languages, he would often, when he knew who he was talking to, he'd shift. And, uh, you know, all the Americans, all the English-speaking people were uh, very appreciative and even quite devotional toward him, but they, they were all, they met him more with the mind, even with love. But it was, you know, thank you very much, sir, I really enjoyed this. It was, thank you for coming. Even when they were deeply moved. As soon as the Italians would come up, everybody would start laughing. All the Italians, all the Italians would laugh, Swami would laugh. And I'd speak no Italian really, but I could understand enough because all they were saying was, you know, bella, bella, bellissima, gioia, gioia, you know. But they would just kind of exchange random words and everybody would just start feeling from their hearts. It was so dramatic because it wasn't like 
those Italian people were deeper into the teaching. Many of the Americans were deeper. It's just the way we are. And I think that makes it harder for us to be devotees. And also that just this extremely horrible false sophistication that's part of our country right now. You know, that even little children, little children dress like small adults. I mean, there's just, there's no childhood. I see the middle school kids and they're just, just awful. Um, When we, uh, the movie Finding Happiness, which almost all of you have seen, not all of you, but you know, there's all the choir scenes in there and we dressed up the choir in the beautiful costumes that we have and you can't really see it, but they're wearing little gold shoes. The girls are wearing little gold shoes. They have these little scarves around their neck, and we're standing up there, and we're singing our songs, like we do. And I went to the focus group for that movie in an earlier iteration, and the, um, among the things that people objected to was the, the length of time that the camera was on the choir. And if cinematically, it really didn't work. I mean, they were nice-looking people, but after a while, you were tired of looking at them. So in the final version of that movie, we had all the same music, but it cuts away from the choir really soon, and the music becomes a background for lots of footage of the community, which worked out just really beautifully. But I happened to be the only one from Ananda who was able to go to that meeting in Hollywood, and I was sitting the next day with our three... Uh, the three highly professional Hollywood movie um, publicists talking about this. And uh, at some point, they must have felt comfortable enough with me, and one of them turns to me and he says, do you all really do that? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I said, did you mean dress up in rainbow colors and sing those happy songs? We do it all the time. I said, we don't always wear the gold shoes. <laughs> but it was just like, in his world, he just couldn't imagine seemingly sane, educated, intelligent adults. You know, just doing that. But we do it all the time. Because we're very childlike. And, not, and we're not trying to be shrewd anymore. It didn't work cinematically. Even I had to admit that. Um, but yes, we do it all the time. I was, uh, at one point when I was doing, a, trying to make Ananda into a California city, this was back in 1981, that project, that marvelous project that we worked on. And so we were involved with the local county. And there was this man, uh, Cranmer, I can't, Jim Cranmer. He was an engineer and he was one of the officials and we were working closely with him. So when Christmas came, he invited us to his Christmas party, us as myself and this woman named Dallas Atkins, who was an attorney, and she and I were working on this. Um, Sheila Rush was also working with us, Nidruva, but I think just Dallas and I went to that party. He invites us to his Christmas party. Okay, we're trying to make contacts in the local area, so it was just an afternoon, so we went to this party, and it was held in this room, just, you know, a little decoration. There was a piano in the room, but it was kind of pushed off to the side, and it wasn't really accessible. And we arrived at this party. It was about a two- or three-hour party. And we looked around, and we tried to figure out what we were going to do at this party, and we realized that we were expected to drink alcohol, and that that was all that was going to happen at this party, is that people were going to gradually get more and more drunk, and that was the entire entertainment. No music, no games, no nothing. And it was just like, 
was very sad, actually. But it was also so bewildering to us. Where's the creativity? Where's the fun? Where's the friendship? Where's the interaction? So we, you know, hung around just long enough to, till the vibrations begin to change and then slipped out the door. But it was very painful. But that's what happened. Somebody said to me yesterday, oh yes, my relatives are very calm now because they drink so much. <laughs> they're just at the end of their lives and they're very disappointed, so they're solving it by just sort of a steady diet of uh, inebriation. Wow. Well, just, they just get to try it again later. So, by thus eliminating awareness of objective reality, <laughs> by moving up in your consciousness instead of down, the next stage, this is number 249, the next stage in meditation is to calm the flow of the inner life force. Okay, see, so we're moving progressively here. Asana is to calm the agitation of the physical body. And so whether we do hatha yoga or energization or what we do, we have to calm it because until the body is relatively um, neutral, it's always going to be pulling us out because we will also shift, sniff, scratch, or swallow. (laughs) Swami says. But then... So we've gotten the physical body down. The next stage in meditation is that we have to calm the inner life force. But we can't really begin to do that until we have the, our posture correct. Of course, Swamiji often points out, and he's pointed it out in here too, that these are not sequential. This is eight limbs, but eight limbs like the equal parts rather than you finish number one, you finish number two. So even as we're attempting to calm the body and have it be um, a matter of no consequence, we are also attempting to calm the inner life force. And this is uh, pranayama, which uh, he calls in the earlier sutra, the withdrawal of energy. Let me just make sure when he lists these out. Yes, number four, which is called, which is pranayama, he calls it the withdrawal of energy. And so the energy that we're withdrawing is that we're even if the body is not moving, you know, we, we, we're still engaged in it. We're still listening to see if the phone rings. We're still opening our eyes every so often to see if the fog has lifted or to glance at the clock, you know, or to mutter or think about something or have an idea and write down a thought, you know, whatever it might be. The life force is still just right at the edge. And so what, we're, what we really have to learn to do now is we have to learn to withdraw all that life force into the center. And this is, as Swamiji well points out, this is actually the process of death. When, when we die, that's exactly what happens. I was listening to a, a satsang that Shurjo and Narayani gave in Chennai sometime in August. And Shurjo and Narayani were with Swamiji um, in his last moments when he died. And Shurjo expressed it just slightly differently than I had heard either of them express it before, that when Swami passed away, he uh, passed out of his body. He was sitting at the breakfast table, and he had this uh, seizure. And that was really, as, as, as Shurjo described it, that's when Swami left. But they moved him to the bed and tried to get him to come back. And so he actually breathed um, a, a handful of times more. 
But Shurjo said that was the point at which he left. And he, he had this seizure. And the way Shurjo described it is the energy, it, it, his whole body contracted. And it just contracted up and away from the bottom all the way to the top. And everything contracted really in, intensely like that. And then suddenly it relaxed. And he stopped breathing. So it was sort of just like that. Just the whole thing just pulled out. And then they moved him and put him out on the bed and Shurjo was chanting Om and Miriam and Narayani were encouraging him to breathe. And so he did a few more times. I mean, I don't know whether it was three or four more times. Not much. But that comment of Shurjo's that he, he left all at once and then he was gone. That was that. But he said Swami was totally ready to go. But he could feel people pulling on him, so he, he breathed through his body a couple more times. And he actually, I mean, he opened his eyes and he looked at Narayani and then he stopped. At which point they all knew that he was finished. And then they stopped trying to pull him. You know, the, in his state of awareness, he, he, he could be conscious of everything that was going on. It was, be- it was a beautiful expression. If you look it up on, uh, oh, I don't know where it is, Ananda India somewhere. August in Chennai. So he's talking here about exactly what we're doing. We, you know, when, when the body dies, it dies from the edges out, and all the energy comes into the spine, and then it comes up the spine. That's what made me think of that. And that's exactly what we're doing. But when, it, when death comes, um, no willpower can bring you back. That's just the final exit. But in, in meditation, it's an act of our will to withdraw that energy. And therefore, of course, as soon as we direct our will outward again, our energy comes out again. But it's in the, in the context of studying Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. If we're studying other things, we talk more about the integrated life and all these other things. But Patanjali's the extremist, and that's where we're trying to go. So a very excellent image it's just a very simple and a good in- image is that this is, you know, this is the small death that I'm doing here. Imagine if this, I am bodiless, suspended in infinite space, and I simply, all of my consciousness is you know, in my spine, in my chakras, and at my spiritual eye. There is no other reality for me at this time. I mean, these are um, marvelously liberating ideas. And of course... Um, on Sunday, I was talking about my... Uh, sometimes I don't like when I'm with a group of people who are not that experienced on the path to use the chant, I want only thee, Lord. It feels too extreme of an affirmation for me. Um, and I fear that people will subconsciously rebel against it. Because immediately they'll think of all the things that they, they still want in their lives. And it's a bit hard. It's, of course, it's a true affirmation, and I'm not. It's a beautiful chant, and I personally really like it, but I can sometimes feel the resistance. But all of the chants, many of the chants are like that. They're they're big stories. Um, I often use listen, listen, listen to my heart song because that just is more of a bridge sometimes. But when we're sitting to meditate, if, if we're really serious about our meditation practice, we eliminate awareness of objective reality by all the techniques that we're talking, and then just let it all go. 
I mean, just imagine that we're in the last moments of our life and we simply aren't connected to this body anymore. Uh, this woman that I knew who was, uh, was close to death, I went to see her and she knew that she would last just a few more days and, and it's like it's like large part, one half of her body, much of her body, just she wasn't related to it anymore. She could still walk a little bit and she got up and was walking and she just commented, just as in, sort of out of interest. She was completely unafraid. You know, when, she, when I left her, she smiled and laughed and said, we'll see you on the other side. But she just commented about the fact that she had no idea. It was her, it was her right arm. She had no idea where it was. And just nothing. She knew, didn't know where it was and she didn't have any idea what it was doing and she had no control over it. And it, was, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't like she'd had a stroke or something. It's just that, she, that the life force had withdrawn and largely out of her right leg too. But it was so interesting. And she, she just presented it as, isn't it interesting? You know, this has always been a part of my body and now it just isn't because I'm on my way to somewhere else. So when we sit to meditate, we can kind of just remain identified with our personality and where we're sitting and all the things that we're doing and what we're going to do in the half an hour or 45 minutes as soon as this is over, or else we become bodiless, suspended in infinite space, and then even once we're inside our bodies, just let all the energy withdraw. That's pratyahara. Swamiji talks here about irreversible. That's the, swam, the word Swami used about death, which I loved irreversible. That's a very nice word. That's exactly what it is. It's just once that one is done, it's done. The uh, little death. And this was how St. Paul talked about. He said, he used the phrase, I die daily by the grace of Jesus Christ. He said, I die daily. Just meaning that the whole world ceases to exist for me. It's, it's uh, you know, whether we can actually do it ourselves or not, but even just while we're meditating, just imagine how, how complete and irreversible the exit is when we actually physically die and just using our creative imagination. Just imagine if that was the moment that we're really having right now. And if in fact we knew that in this moment we really had to let it all go, what would we do differently than we're doing sitting there right now? Of course, it's, it's a slightly a game, but not really because it's always... It's always the moment, and whatever the next moment needs to be will, will be given to us. And just to, to relax completely. And then Master uh, Swamiji talks here about how pratyahara, pranayama, I mean, is often equated with um, the breath. But then he says it's really, it's really not inaccurate to say that because the life force causes the breath. And when we begin to work with the movement of breath and to have more mastery over it. And of course our Kriya practice is a pranayama. It's a practice of using the breath to be able to be in, re- in right relationship to the life force. And so all of the exercises that we do that help us um, to be more conscious of what our breath is doing and then to gain some mastery over that flow of breath is a very direct way to get into the energy but Swamiji is just wanting us to understand that, you know, merely breathing like this or whatever other exercises we do is not in itself what is meant by pranayama. It's just a means for calming the breath and then we can begin to calm all the life force as well. So we can work at it both from, you know, those kinds of practices 
and also from uh, all the ways in which our mind is automatically drawn out into that world of duality. And without losing awareness, we just want to stop defining ourselves in the world we're living in in terms of all its ups and downs. To, to just literally move into the place where nothing moves, nothing changes. Nothing lives, nothing dies. Everything simply is. That's the opposite of the mind that's drawn into the, the dual world. Well, any questions or comments before we take a little break? Okay, let's take a little break. Then we will keep running right through this section. We are moving like so much faster than we have moved recently. So this is number 250. The emphasis while breathing, and therefore in the flow of the life force, may be more on inhalation, on exhalation, or on stillness. It may be on space entering the body, rather than on the body's breathing, on the timing of the inhalation and exhalation, whether rapid or slow, and and on the number of counts in each inflow and outflow, whether the flow be short or long. So he's basically just giving you a summary of all the possible pranayama exercises that you can do without really giving us any of them specifically, but he's telling us all the different ways that we can use the breath to access life control. And this is, you know, this is a lot more, there's a lot more in here about pranayama than there is about asana. Of course, uh, for some people, asana and pranayama go together, but the withdrawal of the energy through your relationship with your breath. And then what Swami does right here is immediately, he just teaches us Hong Sa again, which he tells us that he taught us earlier in uh, Sutra number 10, I think he said somewhere here. Yeah, Sutra 10, number 110. But what I was thinking about this without going into teaching Hong Sa again, let me think, um, is how Master took the entire ancient science of yoga and he reduced it down to a handful of specific techniques. It's not that um, we don't have anywhere any of the traditional pranayamas of counting the breath and alternate breathing and all of that. Swami has a lot of that in the art and science of, of Raja Yoga because it's right here in Patanjali that these are very good methods for being able to make these changes. There's all, there's all kinds of different ways to work with ourselves to make these changes. Um, I, I tend to work with attitude, with devotion, with service, you know, and meditation. But I, I don't spend a lot of time teaching all of these small things just because of the way my temperament is. It doesn't, I, I emphasize that because it's one of the great things about Ananda is that there's a lot of us, a lot of different ones of us, and everybody has a slightly different way of approaching it, and you can find a way that works for you. Deb has a question. Deb, because... Of the recording, you have to speak into the microphone, if you don't mind. So that way it comes up in the recording. Just put it fairly close to you. So what you're saying is that breathing, the pranayama, is only one of tool or technique to, um, I guess as the Tibetans would say, um, dissolve obscuration. So it's only one way to work with the mind. It's just one one of many ways. One of many ways, but it's an extremely important and central way to do it. Because the relationship between life force and breath is, breath and life force are totally interwoven. So it's important 
important to have some aspect of pranayama worked into your personal practice. Yes. That's the point of the sutra? That's the point of the sutra. Right, thank you. And what, what I was finding interesting, and again, you're working at a slight disadvantage, but we'll catch up, is that one of the fundamental practices of Kriya Yoga, which is to say the path that these masters taught, it begins with, with a, breath, a breath meditation. And that meditation, as described in this particular sutra, involves watching the in and out flow of the breath, coordinating the in and out flow with the mantra Hong Sa. And what I was realizing is that of all the possible things that Master could have taught from all of these different possible ways that you can work with the breath and train it, Master taught Hong Sa. Because it, it, it brings it in right to the essence. And it's, it helps us who are following this particular path not feel that we have to, to run around and add a lot of other things. That's what, I, that's what I took from the way Swami commented on this particular sutra. He's wanting to make this book, um, he, you know, he's not making it a sectarian book. And the Hongsa technique is also very well known. It's not by any means unique to the path of Kriya Yoga. But taking the sutra, which is talking about all the possible ways you can do pranayams, he offers us the one. He offers us the hangsa. Yeah. It seems like um, just the way the sutra part is written, the emphasis may be on all these other things, which sounds kind of like in hangsa, you don't control the breath. The breath is going to do whatever it will do. It will be fast or it will be slow or it will be deep or shallow or whatever. Um, and it doesn't matter. Is right. that what the sutra is saying? Or is the sutra saying like you can do different pranayams, some of which, you know, it emphasize says, things in different ways, and then yeah. Swami only decides to comment on one which doesn't actually emphasize any of those because you're not controlling it. Um, it doesn't say anything about control. The emphasis while breathing. Right, right. right. I, yeah. I was, I was wondering if that's what it meant, because it just says the emphasis may be. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah we're both saying the same thing. It may be on any of those things. So Swami says, okay, so here's one to try. Just do this one. And it, it just simplifies it down. Um, let me just, there was a phrase here. The additional matters to think about, space, rapidity, and numbers, are means, this is his explanation, means simply for keeping the mind focused on what one is doing. You actually say it's okay for people to do that in Hong Sa? No. I mean, because that's not how Hong Sa is taught. Okay, but he, just, he says it right at the end of explaining He does, Hong doesn't Sa. he? Yeah, he does say it. Um, let me just... Is it in the possible? He doesn't really draw it to a fine point. He just merely says all of the rest of those things are good for concentration. But he's also just suggesting the Hong Sa is a as a way to cut through it all. Let me go back to Sutra number 10 and number 1 and see how much more, more completely he teaches it there. Just out of curiosity. Well, actually, see, in step 110, he teaches it a great deal. He teaches it much more completely than he does on, in this one. So he's just summarizing it at this point. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, one can, 
one can go from here into any kind of pranayama practice that you want to because Patanjali endorses it all. So Swami's just randomly, not randomly, but specifically recommending this. We need the microphone on that side. Thank you. I wonder if there's a point here also that might clarify what Swami's talking about where he talks about by chanting Hong at the root of the nose, it starts to bring the ego consciousness from the medulla up to the spiritual eye, the positive pole, towards um, superconscious enlightenment. So he's talking as he almost, he, he's encouraging us to go for superconscious enlightenment by practicing Hong Sa. Right, that's why I was saying yeah. he, but I guess I was starting to say when the question came up, that, that there were so many things that Master could have selected. And when you really think about the, the actual techniques that Master taught, we don't, think about, um, we don't think about a whole lot of things. We think about doing Hong Sa, we think about energization, about Om and about Kriya. I mean, you just, you take the whole and it just comes down to that. And of course, people then personalize it. This is what I was starting to say. People then personalize it by just, this is my karma, this is my orientation, this is what works for me. So um, I was asked during the break whether Swami Kriyananda ever did yoga postures as part of his personal sadhana. And I never took any classes from him in the city. Um, So I only saw him at Ananda village, at which point by the time I got there, Satya, the man Satya, was already living there, who was an expert Hatha yogi, and so he always led all the yoga postures. So I can't recall ever seeing Swami doing a single yoga posture. And in all the years that I knew him, I can't remember him ever doing a yoga posture in the context of his, of his own personal house or life. Um, we'd have to ask Jyotish. Jyotish was with him in lots of classes, so of course he led them at those classes. But I, just, I don't think it was really his sadhana. And one of the reasons he, he taught them at that time and wrote the whole course about them was that was so soon after he was separated from Self-Realization Fellowship and he was looking for a way to do something that Master taught that they weren't doing. And Master had endorsed Hatha Yoga, but they weren't teaching it. So he, he, that's one of the reasons he put a lot of emphasis on it. But uh, I never saw him use it for his own life. But I, I, I don't want that to stand because I'm, I, I don't feel like I'm an authority on that. Some of the things that I say about him, I... I, I have verified. This one I'm just, to the best of my recollection. But then again here with the, I mean, and he taught uh, alternate breathing and various things like that in the course of, a, of our Ananda life. We all learned a lot of those things. But when he talks about it here, he just goes right to the Hong So because if you do it properly, it, 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 it's, um, it withdraws the energy, withdraws the energy from ego and puts it at the spiritual eye, which is the whole point of the exercise. But he implies here, and I think this is what this last part, the additional matters are for keeping the mind focused on what one is doing. And hey, some of us might need some of those additional matters to like perhaps keep our mind focused on what we're doing. What do you think? So he's kind of offering that in there. But I think he's also wanting us to understand that, again, he's making this point that none of these things are really the point. I mean, these these practices are for the sake of accomplishing this other goal and if we can accomplish that other goal in this way, that's a much more direct method. And the others are supporting. And if we need them, if they, if they work for us, I don't want to say if they need, we need them as if it's lesser to need them. But if they benefit us and work for them, I mean, think how much time we waste 
doing nothing useful at all. <laughs> oh, so maybe if we could spend some of that doing measured breathing, that would be a nice thing to do, don't you think? <laughs> you have to weigh one thing against another. Think about what you're really, really doing here. Okay, any other comments or thoughts here? I love this, uh, the opposite chakra. That's something that, when I was in New Zealand again, I, I had the opportunity, so many of the people I was, I was talking to, it was a very, if it, if it, wasn't, it wasn't an empty space, but it was, it was a relatively clean um, space. People's minds were not as cluttered with as many other ideas and contradictory thoughts just because of the nature of the situation. And people were becoming interested rather directly. And so, and so nothing about Master's Path was known. And it was so much fun to... It was so much fun in the highest sense of fun to just sort of see how fabulous these concepts are. And one of them I particularly love is ego-centered at the medulla, spiritualized-centered here, two kinds of ways to be an individual. I mean, either an individual that's separate from the universe in which I live, or I'm an individual that is connected to the universe in which I live. And all of this practice of just pulling our sense of self from separateness to unity. It's just such, it's such a simple and such a beautiful idea, isn't it? And there's so many things that we do, and this goes to the ordinary life. This is the non-Patanjali part. And when I was there, I was teaching much more of this of how do you really do this in ordinary life? And of course, separateness or unity. In, in every situation that you're in, what do we want to be affirming? Am I affirming that I'm separate? That I need to think about myself and take from myself? Do I feel that I'm unified? Do I feel like everything is up to me? Or do I feel that I'm working as part of an interwoven pattern of which you know, I'm, I'm flowing with the force here? It's just, it's, I just love it every time I see the two. So just, it comes here, drawing the energy from the medulla to here. Also, thinking, because we were teaching meditation a number of times, which I don't usually do. I'm not usually teaching those classes. Um, when, we, when you're raising your eyes to meditate and looking at the spiritual eye with closed eyes, and trying to explain to people that I mean, this is the way it always sort of feels to me. We're, we're, we're kind of perched at the medulla, you know, and we're just kind of looking out from that point because that is really sort of what it feels like. We don't really look, we don't really live in our eyeballs. We don't, you don't feel yourself to be right here under your eyelids. You're somewhere back in there a bit. But I was feeling how when you begin to really um, see the spiritual eye or feel the magnetism of the spiritual you're just basically sucked off your seat. You know, you're just, you're just drawn into it. And that feeling of being drawn into that light is literally pulling you off of the medulla into the spiritual eye. And that's the expansive way of feeling it, that your, your whole energy is just going out. And you're no longer just trapped in this little machine that we're always so trapped in with these solid edges. We just lose all of that. And then we are bodiless, suspended in infinite space, more or less. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, any questions or thoughts? Number 251. There is a fourth kind of pranayama, fourth meaning B 
between inhalation, exhalation, and stillness. And that fourth one, there's a fourth kind of pranayama, which occurs during breathlessness, when one ceases to be aware of the outer world and the body. My guru used to say, breathlessness is deathlessness. I don't know what other translations say, but Swami takes the trouble to say, translators have made a mess of this last clause. Um, Breathlessness ensues only when awareness of outer reality fades and one becomes increasingly aware of the inner world. I can't comment further on that. I'm not qualified to. Um, 2.52. In consequence, the veil hiding the inner light is removed. I love the way the, the words follow in sequence. In consequence, meaning when we have moved out of having to breathe altogether because the breath is what keeps us engaged, the duality of the breath. And so when we stop having to engage with the material world, then the veil dissolves and we see the inner light perfectly because mind has been conquered, the, the part of us that's being compelled because even the, you know, the up and down of breath is the last form of that duality. And so when that ceases and goes into perfect stillness, then there's nothing that pulls us into the dual world anymore and the inner light is revealed in consequence. 2.53, then the mind becomes fit for true concentration. Oh dear. (laughs) But there's lots of less true concentration prior to that, don't you think? (laughs) Okay. When all distractions have been removed. So then we get to the fifth state on the path of contemplation, which is sutra number 254, is known as pratyahara, when the interiorization of the mind, when the senses are withdrawn, and the chitta, essential feeling, is calm. So, but you know, we, even without practicing all of these perfectly, this is, we, we, we watch ourselves, you know, take, I don't know what you would call them, baby versions of this, or, or uh, intermittent versions of this. And I do think it's enormously helpful, as I've commented many times before, to really meditate on what those realities are so that, that you have a, a, an inner intuition about what those, that those realities are. And that's one of the ways that, because what we're doing with all of this, I mean, much of this, I mean, there's two, there's two realities happening here. One is the actual being drawn into these states and then having everything about us respond. So the breath stops in stillness, the awareness of the outside world just literally disappears. Our, all our, we practiced um, pranayama perfectly and our mind is completely interiorized. And that is an actual state that we get drawn into. The alternative to that is we're trying to attune ourselves to that vibration. And that's why we study these scriptures and, and, and meditate on what would it feel like and how can I visualize and how can I project myself with my imagination into that state. And we contemplate it and in contemplating it we begin to attune to it and when we begin to attune to it we begin to merge into it. Because that being the point of yoga practice 
is even though we, are, we may not yet be experiencing it and we are using creative imagination, what we are imagining is actually there. And that, that's the most important thing. We are imagining reality. Most of the time when we use our imagination, we're trying to escape from reality. In this case, we're trying to escape from non-reality by imagining reality. And the more, the more vividly we can see, feel, and understand that, the more fragments of ourselves begin to actually vibrate on that wavelength. And just that's why this book for me, when I started it now such a long time ago, when I first read it, it was so revolutionary to me because I just had never quite moved into the fact of how irrelevant the outside world is. It just, it just captured my imagination and completely changed the way I related to the outside world because I really got from Patanjali... Um, I don't know why, I had never heard it, gotten it before, but I really got from this commentary on Patanjali that it's, it, that the world is irrelevant. So you imagine your consciousness being in Pratyahara, where the senses are completely withdrawn, but then he adds, and it's so important, the chitta is calm. So we, you, can't be, you can't be merely withdrawn, you can't be in Pratyahara, if you're merely withdrawn, if your feelings are agitated. And this takes us back to the yamas and the niyamas, which is why it all has to work together, because what causes our, uh, the chitta to be agitated? Lack of contentment, lack of purity, um, lack of the practice of ahimsa, living in a false world, you know, telling untruths, all of these things, lack of self-understanding, lack of surrender to God, so even if we interiorize our consciousness, it's no place that we want to be unless that, that uh, purification on other levels has taken place. So you see how beautifully it all goes together? So then when we begin to go into our interior self and we notice those agitations, then we refer to another aspect of Patanjali and try to you know, make our relationship to the external world um, more what it ought to be. And it, there's, there's no escape. It all ends up being its own story. Let me think. There was a point there that I lost for a second. Let's see if I can remember it. Oh, I remember, and it, this has been the truth all through my life. Um, sometimes what disturbs you in meditation is as important as the peace that you find there. Because when you really bring your consciousness inward and then you find out what keeps you from being able to be completely calm often you find out things about yourself you didn't know at least that's been my life experience you realize you know what your true feelings may be you may realize buried disappointments buried delusions you know, just all kinds of things so it's not merely that everything that agitates you just needs to be expelled sometimes you have to ask yourself you know where is this coming from because the chitta has to be dissolved. And here also, here's one more last piece of advice. Real meditation means concentration on the inner truth. Um, it's, it's the ability to concentrate one-pointedly on one thing at a time. Meditation is focusing that concentration on God or on one of his attributes. Peace, calmness, bliss, love, power, sound, light, 
and wisdom. We come back, it, I don't think it's come up so much in this class. Is that eight? One, two, three, four, yes. Um, in this class, we haven't talked about the eight manifestations as much, but in other classes, it's one of my big-time favorites. And, and he's, Swami's giving us direct advice. How do you interiorize your consciousness? By one-pointed concentration on God or one of his attributes. So the feeling of love, the feeling of joy, yes? Eight attributes of God. Peace, calmness, bliss, love, power, sound, light, wisdom. Okay? And so the attributes of God are often more accessible than the abstraction. You know, the light, the sound of Om. Um, uh, wisdom is, is a, an impersonal uh, perception of some fact of the universe, such as hanging bodiless in infinite space. And so when we're trying to to interiorize our consciousness, that's another way that we do it. Um, And then, so we might as well finish this section, 255, from this follows supreme mastery over the senses. One-pointed concentration on God or some aspect. Calm, relaxed posture, Interior withdrawal of the energy, control of the energy, pranayama, pratyahara, one-pointed concentration and interiorization. Okay? And by concentrating on God or one of his aspects, when all of that is in line, from this follows supreme mastery over the senses. Then Swami adds, Patanjali did not say permanent mastery. (laughs) He meant only as applied to that particular day's meditation. (laughs) And then he said, From the above, it is easy to understand why hermits retire to Himalayan caves for meditation. Okay. That ends book number two of Patanjali. Yeah, we sort of rushed through the end there because it just was, because the subject is not something I can speak about at such length. And it also just is. So we went from 246 all the way to 255 today. A near record, I'm sure of that. Okay, any comments or questions before we call it a night? Okay, great souls. Nice to see you all.